Welcome to this Forthright Radio for July 7th, 2021. I'm Joy Claire. Our guest today is journalist, researcher, and debunker of conspiracy theories, Mike Rothschild. His first book, The World's Worst Conspiracies, was published in January 2020 by Arcturus Publishing, London. His work is cited in the New York Times, Snopes, PolitiFact, Salon, Vice, NPR, among many others. His latest book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, was just published by Melville House. We spoke with Mike Rothschild on July 2, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Mike Rothschild. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Mike, your book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, is really useful in helping us to understand this phenomenon. As you point out in the book, between 2018 and 2020, nearly 100 Republican candidates declared themselves to be Q believers, and their presence at the January 6, 2021 assault on the U.S. Congress was highly visible. Before we get into the particulars of QAnon, let's acknowledge that conspiracies do exist. Children are victims of pedophiles, even organized groups of pedophiles, the Catholic Church, for example. And just today, we are recording this on July 2nd, 2021, news of the $850 million settlement by the Boy Scouts of America with 80,000 claims filed. Children are kidnapped and die, as the growing number of their graves being found at former Canadian Indian schools attest. But there is a distinction between conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Would you please speak to that aspect of this? Sure. And it's really important to acknowledge that conspiracies are real. And I talk about this quite a bit in the book, is that there's a long history of people conspiring together to do things that are bad for other people and good for them. You go from the assassination of Julius Caesar to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, all the way through to the cigarette companies covering up the effects of tobacco. I mean, all of that is is completely real. And of course, you're right about organized exploitation of children is also real. And it's one of the things that makes studying these kinds of movements difficult is because when you start talking about how the specific things in the conspiracy theory aren't real, people invariably respond with, oh, I guess you think there's no such thing as conspiracies. And of course there are. But what I have found in the writing and the work that I've done is that the popularly held conspiracy theories are never proven to be true. The actual conspiracies are going on in places where internet sleuths can't deduce them on Twitter. They're being covered up in ways that we don't even know about until after they're done. So yes, absolutely. Conspiracies are real. They've always been real. They always will be. Among other things, your book is a history of QAnon. As you understand it, how did the QAnon phenomenon begin? The QAnon phenomenon begins with these posts on this message board, 4chan. And those took place a couple of weeks after a very strange and still unexplained comment by then-President Trump that a gathering of military officers could be the calm before the storm. 
nobody knew in that room what he was talking about. Nobody knew the next day what he was talking about. Nobody knows now what he was talking about. It, it was just one of those things that he said that doesn't mean anything. But that sort of triggered this movement online of people who had spent years telling these stories on 4chan that they were anonymous White House insiders or anonymous FBI insiders, and they were sharing their secret knowledge with the rest of us. So another one of those anonymous insiders cropped up a few weeks later claiming that Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested and that the storm that Trump was talking about then was this storm of sealed indictments being unsealed and the biggest drivers of the deep state and the entertainment industry and big business would all be arrested. And this immediately caught on with people. It was a week before you had fans of this account who were buying into every bit of the story that this person was putting out because it just seemed so compelling and it was so much wish fulfillment. It was, here is what we want to happen and we're going to make it happen. And it was a very compelling story. Crucial to the development of this are the platforms, this all happens online. Yes. So would you spend a little bit of time talking about the types of platforms that these things appear and how that created the phenomenon the way it ended up being? You have these almost entirely unmoderated image boards, these places like 4chan, 8chan, which went down for a while and now has another name. They're constantly popping up. And it's these places where People talk about going somewhere where they can't be censored, where everything they say is is fair game and, and there's complete freedom of speech, which is a fine idea. But these places invariably are taken over by racists, by neo-Nazis, by people spouting the absolute worst stuff. And that's where QAnon really began was this place 4chan. But very quickly, some of the early evangelists of the movement realized that they were never going to be able to get their message out only by using 4chan, because in many cases, it's a very terrible place and it's very difficult to navigate. Even for legitimate stuff on 4chan, it's very hard to find anything if you don't know how to use it. So what they did was they started posting long threads on Twitter, videos on YouTube, decoding these Q drops, you know, these very mysterious rhetorical pieces of information that were being shared. And so you very quickly started to build up a fan base that was getting information from 4chan, but didn't need to go there. So there was already a, a, a sort of a, a system of, of acolytes, of disciples who would take this information and reinterpret it and push it out to an even bigger audience while never actually needing to go to these places. And it flourished, particularly on Twitter, where there really wasn't any effort to curb it for years. Yes, and you end up being rather critical about the various social media apparatus that did allow this to happen. But let's get back to the history of it. So it began at the end of 2017. Am I right about that? Yeah, uh, late October 2017 was the first drop on, on uh, 4chan. What I find, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, so perplexing is how and why this short little, what they call a drop, and perhaps yeah. you should explain what a drop is. All right, so we're in wildfire season. So we know that just a spark can cause disasters in the right conditions. Describe your concept of what were the right conditions that allowed this 
spark and the infinite sea of everything that's online to turn into QAnon. And just to define it, a drop is one of the posts that Q made on one of these image boards. And there's about 4,900 of them. And they range anywhere from long strings of rhetorical questions. You've got out-of-context pictures with no text. Some of them are just links to tweets or Fox News stories. They can be very repetitive. Some of them are actually fairly interesting. Some of them are really dull. They're all over the place. You really can't understand QAnon without understanding the drops. But at the same time, the drops are sort of incomprehensible. So you automatically had that built-in ecosystem of these disciples who would interpret these things. And it really caught on, I think, that spark that elevated it from just another 4chan troll to this mass movement was that the story that Q was telling in those very early drops, I think was actually very well-written and very compelling. It, it really seemed like something out of a Tom Clancy novel. The, the first drop was Hillary Clinton being arrested, the Marines and National Guard being called up to crush the riots that would take place after her arrest, and a, an entire system of codes and prompts for how to know that this was going on. Now, one of the things that was going on at this time, and I, I made this connection in the book, is that you also had these conspiracy theories, really more rumors, going around of an Antifa uprising that would be taking place on November 4th. And this was going around far-right social media, that Antifa members would be going door-to-door in conservative-leaning neighborhoods and just sort of grabbing people and beating them up. And that the Insurrection Act was going to be invoked to deal with this. Those two things were sort of going on at the same time. And I think that the original Q really believed that this Antifa uprising was about to happen and that the calling up of the National Guard would be a good cover to sort of propagate this conspiracy theory that they were building. Of course, the Antifa uprising never happened. It never existed. But by that point, it was already about a week into this and people were already hooked on the story. And I really believe it was because the first drop was Hillary Clinton is going to be arrested. These people hated Hillary Clinton with a with a fervor that is like unmatched except in hardcore sports fandom. They had spent decades wanting her to get justice. And so finally it was about to happen. And and people just couldn't look away from it. Let's talk about the people who you have identified as being, I don't know if promoters are the right term, but organizers, let's say. Paul Ferber and Coleman Rogers and the Watkins family. Talk about their impact and and involvement in this. Sure. So it should be noted that a lot of them really deny having any role in QAnon or deny kind of what their role is. And and everybody's a little bit different in that respect. I think it's a good bet that Paul Ferber, he's the the South African web programmer who I talk about a little bit in the book. It was his board on 8chan that Q started making posts on after they left 4chan. So they went from 4chan to Paul Ferber's board on 8chan. And to me and to a lot of the other people who study this, there's really no reason that the Q poster would do this except if Paul Ferber is behind it somehow. And then, of course, Ferber kind of sours on it. He thinks that only a certain number of the posts were real and the rest of them were fake. And at some point, it looks as if Paul Ferber loses control of the the Q account. And Q jumps around 8chan a little bit and then eventually winds up on their own board. 
And the only person I believe who could have created a board at that level was Ron Watkins. And Ron Watkins is the son of Jim Watkins. I, I know I keep throwing names at you, but it all kind of ties together. Jim Watkins owned HM. And his son, Ron, was the administrator of it, sort of the chief tech person. And it's very clear, I think, very early on that Ron and Jim are linked to QAnon. Now, does that mean they're making the posts, that they're controlling the direction of it? I, I don't know. They both deny it. They both continue to deny it. They've always denied it. But it's fairly clear that without those two guys – Q really wouldn't have been able to prosper on HN. And the other thing is that why would Q, if Q were a military intelligence operation, as believers think it is, why choose this difficult to navigate, racism-filled image board that very few people actually go to to propagate your message? You know, you would do it on Twitter, you do it on Facebook or YouTube. So it, the link between the two of them is circumstantial. But it really becomes the only thing that makes sense at a certain point. And didn't you reveal that Ron Watkins actually accidentally showed himself in, during a stream inappropriately, quote unquote? Tell us about that. That wasn't Ron. That was another one of the early Q evangelists. This guy Coleman Rogers. Oh, excuse me. Uh -huh. No, no. It's I know. It's it's one of the, well. One of the things I wanted to do in the book is kind of demystify some of this stuff and strip away a lot of the name dropping because you very quickly get into a whole bunch of names of people who were involved or could have been involved. I've always felt like if you throw too many names at people of sort of hackers or whatever, people just sort of glaze over and they lose interest. But uh, Rogers, along with Ferber, was one of the really early evangelists of this movement. And it was Rogers and Ferber who went on Infowars in December of 2017, touting how incredible this whole thing was and how retired military Americans could get involved in it. And it was really that point that that it really jumped out to baby boomers. But it was Rogers who was doing a live stream. I think it was on his Patriot Soapbox 24-hour live stream. And he accidentally logged in to a chant as QAnon. Now, I don't know that that necessarily means he was doing the posts. And I know there's a, a theory that he wasn't Q, but he was testing how easy it was to log in as Q, and he did it accidentally. I, I don't really know, and I'm not sure that it really matters. But there was this small group of very plugged-in early acolytes of QAnon who really drove it to the next level. And that was the point where people just didn't want to think about it too much. They just wanted it to be real. And so those kinds of revealing mistakes just didn't matter at that point. You go on to identify certain aspects of conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking and glitches like that and the ability just to ignore them is one of the attributes of someone who's into a conspiracy belief system. It's like it doesn't matter what evidence is shown, it's not going to do anything Let's go back a little bit to the history of this. And, and then we also should talk about what is the conspiracy that is being believed as QAnon? And one of the antecedents is Pizzagate. Yes. Talk about that and, and how that prepared the world, or America anyway, to believe in QAnon. 
Sure. So Pizzagate was one of the predecessors to QAnon, and there's a number of them. But Pizzagate really fits well together because it was this narrative that cropped up in the really in the days before the 2016 election. And it was all a big 4chan troll pushed by Russian intelligence and a bunch of other bad actors. And it was based on very out-of-context snippets from John Podesta's emails, which, of course, had been hacked by Russian intelligence and dumped by WikiLeaks online. And they were using these very anodyne phrases and these kind of little in-jokes to create this entire web of intrigue where John Podesta and Hillary Clinton and these other people were running a child trafficking ring out of the basement of the Comet Ping Pong pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. All of it was based on nothing. There, there was there, The place doesn't have a basement. It has some – it occasionally hosts sort of edgy punk bands playing and has some kind of weird lurid art on its walls. But beyond that, it, it, there's, there is nothing there. And this didn't really last very long. Pizzagate really flared up over a couple of weeks, basically. And by the time the election was over, it was already starting to fizzle out a bit in, in sort of mainstream coverage. And then you had this guy, Edgar Welsh, who went into the pizza place with an AR-15, fired a couple of rounds, and was looking to rescue the children out of the basement. He was arrested. He, I think he just got out of prison, actually. And Pizzagate at that point became fairly toxic. And, and people who had been sort of flirting with it on the far right, some right-wing media figures had been kind of throwing it around a bit, just backed off from it immediately. But it was less than a year later that we started to have QAnon. And QAnon took a lot of the elements of Pizzagate and fused them with a lot of other elements. So what happens with these conspiracy movements is that they never completely disappear they just change their form and they grab pieces of other things. So Pizzagate grabbed pieces of the blood libel and pieces of the sort of anti-Clinton hysteria. QAnon grabbed all that stuff, but a bunch of other stuff too. And so whatever comes next, they'll grab parts of QAnon, parts of these other things, and probably parts of something that hasn't even happened yet to form a new conspiracy theory. Well, that's actually one of the reasons you have given for having spent the time you have delving into this is because, as you write, it's inevitable that there will be future conspiracy theories and they will build on QAnon. Now, a really important part of this is the mythology that Hillary Clinton, Tom Hanks, all these elites are abducting these children, not only for pedophilia reasons, but to drink their blood. And adrenochrome is um, an important part of this. Talk about that aspect. Sure. So adrenochrome is an interesting thing because it's a term that you hear a lot in this world that the, the elites kidnap children and they have these rituals and then they they drink the adrenochrome, the uh, oxidized adrenaline of these terrified children right before murdering them. The first thing to know is obviously that's not a thing. The second is that the actual term adrenochrome never appears in a Q drop, which I think is really interesting because it's an example of the Q movement kind of running with things that Q themselves never talked about. And it, it shows the the durability of this movement and its adaptability, its, its ability to use sort of 
garbage floating around pop culture for its own purposes. But adrenochrome itself has been around as a concept since the 50s. There, there was a study done, uh, an early study of schizophrenia that was done that theorized that this oxidized form of adrenaline could be this extremely potent hallucinogenic drug. It shows up in the works of Aldous Huxley. It shows up very famously in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, where the idea of drinking adrenochrome from a living person will give you the most powerful high you could possibly imagine. And Thompson talked about it later. He said he made the whole thing up. There's nothing there. It was just him having a goof. But this concept has kind of caught on in these people who are already really plugged into this idea of ritual sacrifices and, and people who, who are really into the satanic ritual abuse conspiracy theory. There's some latent anti-Semitism in it. So it's really not a shock that a concept like that would take off in a circle like this. And these people are already plugged into these kinds of concepts who would grab something like this, with which already has a really well-drawn mythology and incorporate that into the mythology they're building. It's how these movements all build on each other. We're speaking with Mike Rothschild. His book is The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. One of the things that you have said is attracting people is it's like a puzzle. They describe themselves as autists, meaning that they can see things that others don't see. And of particular interest were typos in former President Trump's Twitter feeds. Talk about that. They were seeing messages in these. Yeah. Part of being a QAnon decoder is this this concept that comes up a lot in Chan culture called weaponized autism. And what it means is people who find themselves outside the, the neurotypical spectrum feel like they have abilities that other people don't have. And they are able to see things that other people can't see or don't want to see. And what happens with QAnon and with movements like that is they, they find secret messages. And so you'll find secret messages in typos. Trump will misspell something, but the misspelling is meaningful and it conveys a message. It conveys something that Trump is telling his QAnon followers that the rest of uh, normie America can't see. And you get this a lot. You get secret messages in pictures and in phrases. You're, you're picking out things that you want to be there and you're working backwards to make them real. There, there's no evidence that Trump was using his Twitter feed to send secret messages. Trump is not a guy who sends secret messages. Trump is just a guy who says stuff. We've known that over and over and over and over again. Whatever thought is going through Trump's head, he'll just say it. He doesn't mess around with typos and tweets. So there's really nothing there. But what it plugs into is this idea of secret knowledge, of knowing things that other people don't know. And it makes you special and it makes you important. And it gives you a role to play in what Q believers see as this secret war going on between good and evil. It, it makes things – it makes ordinary boring life much more interesting. <laughs> A person formerly in the Trump administration is kind of a hero in the QAnon movement, and that is Michael Flynn. He coined the term digital soldiers. How does he play into all this? Flynn is a really important part of, of the QAnon mythology, and that term digital soldiers actually comes from a speech he gave 
right after the 2016 election, he talked about his his army of digital soldiers, the Trump troll army that, that took over social media and weaponized memes and all that stuff, which was they did that. I mean, they, they were excellent at that. But Flynn is seen as this almost messianic figure in the QAnon sphere. He's a guy who his his admitting to the FBI that he lied under oath, that was all part of a scheme that he was going to plead guilty when he was really not guilty and he was going to get inside the deep state and get inside the Mueller investigation and blow it open and unveil all of the corruption and that he would eventually be exonerated and that all of these people behind this phony investigation would be brought to justice. He was actually pardoned by Trump, but none of those other things happened. He, he pleaded guilty. And then, of course, he said he didn't do it. And then he said he did do it. So at, what, at some point he was lying about something. But we never think about that with QAnon. You only think about the part you want to think about. And Flynn, really more so than any other mainstream Republican figure, has found QAnon to be a, an almost limitless cash machine to help him pay his legal bills. He was facing, I, I think, something like $5 million in legal bills. And of course, Trump wasn't going to give him a dime for any of it, even though it was all incurred on behalf of Trump. So Flynn had to sell his house. He he had to do all of these other things to make money. He started fundraising off of these people, off of the sort of Trump social media sphere, even before QAnon started. And then when QAnon got really popular, you know, maybe about a year into it, he realized that he could grift these people mercilessly. He trademarked digital soldiers because it had really taken off in that world. He started speaking at these big paid conferences that featured a lot of QAnon interpreters. He started selling QAnon merchandise. He found ways to make money off of this community. And, and I know that there are people who think that he's tied into this at a, at a deeper level, that he's one of the masterminds of it, that he helped orchestrate it. I've never really seen any compelling proof of that. But what I have seen plenty of proof of is that he found a way to make a lot of money off these people. And to me, at least, the motivation doesn't really have to be deeper than that. He needed a lot of money. And here were QAnon acolytes who were willing to give it to him. I'm glad you brought up the whole merchandising. You go into the scams and conspiracies that begat QAnon, and I don't want to spend time on those, but that has to be an aspect of it. But what we should talk about is the second part of your book, where you talk about the effect this has on human relationships, and particularly in families. And you go into the kinds of scams that play on the emotions, particularly of mothers. And out of fear of their children being kidnapped, they kidnap their children. So let's spend some time on that. And let's begin with the architecture that got created with such things as e-claws and that sort of thing. And then we'll get into some of the human interest stories around that. Sure. So the e-claws is a, is a fraudulent law firm that is connected to a number of child kidnappings. And it's run by 
a couple of very deeply QAnon believing attorneys who are not actually attorneys. They they don't have law licenses. It uses QAnon mythology and also a lot of sovereign citizen mythology. You know, these people who think that by inserting extra punctuation in their names and, and writing their names out in capital letters, they can break free of government rules and taxes. And it's a whole it's a whole mythology that's QAnon adjacent, but the two have kind of fused together over the last year. And what these lawyers have done is they've built up a fan base of moms who think that they are helping to liberate children. And you've got some QAnon believing people who are attached to this as kind of fixers who who help sort of facilitate these kidnappings. And you've had multiple QAnon believing mothers kidnapping their own children in custody disputes because they believed that the fathers of these children were going to give them to Child Protective Services who would sell them into sex slavery. And there are three of these kidnappings that I know of, and there, there may have been more that just haven't made the news. But in all of the cases, the children were found unharmed and, and returned, and none of the children were hurt, thankfully. But at least one of these E-Claws lawyers was shot dead, allegedly, by one of the moms who kidnapped her children and was facing prison time for it. And it happened sort of right as I was finishing up the book, and I had to go back and rewrite a bunch of stuff. But this woman, Nellie Petrie Blanchard, had been, I believe, convicted of kidnapping her child. And she was facing prison time, and so she went to Florida to confront the lawyer who was part of E-Claws, who was a big QAnon believer, and something happened, and he ended up being shot and killed. So you now have both another QAnon-linked murder, there have already been a couple, and a child kidnapping. This movement that's based on sort of liberating children from sexual slavery that doesn't actually exist in an, in the form that they believe it does. And you have this, this sort of running count of tra- traumatic events, children being kidnapped, people being shot, all based on this conspiracy theory. And it's it's very troubling. Do you have any explanation of why the individuals who are attracted to this conspiracy theory devote their energies to that rather than things that are demonstrably evidence-based conspiracies? Oh, things like um, fossil fuel companies suppressing information, and but not even just suppressing it, but promoting counter theories about global warming and that sort of thing. Is there a, a character trait or something that guides people this way instead of something like that? Yeah, it's interesting because QAnon is really very rarely somebody's first conspiracy theory. These people come to this through other conspiracy theories. And I feel like the conspiracy theories that lead people to QAnon are very indicative of what they get out of it. So in the beginning, you had a lot of people drawn to QAnon through 9-11 truth, through the Trump spygate conspiracy theory, through the Barack Obama birth certificate conspiracy theory. It was very right-wing leaning stuff. And then as the pandemic hit, you started to see people being driven to QAnon through more traditionally progressive areas, wellness, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, things like that. But the best explanation that I can give for why people buy into this extremely lurid conspiracy theory without addressing the actual conspiracies going on in their life is that this one is somehow more interesting and it makes them feel like they are playing a part in this secret war that's going on. Being a a sort of environmentally conscious person 
is something we should all do, but it doesn't have bells and whistles. It doesn't make you feel like you're striking back at the bad guys. Making a QAnon video, waking up your friends to what's really going on in the deep state, things like that are much more community-based, and they, they give you a kind of a good feeling. They're, they're like a slot machine that never runs out of money. It just keeps giving you the bells and whistles and the buzzers and making you feel good. And it establishes a sense of community. You get into it with people who, who want the same thing, who are looking for the same enemies to fight. And it has a community aspect that I think a lot of these other real conspiracies don't. With a lot of these, it's just people are doing things to you and there's nothing you can do about it. With QAnon, people are doing things to you and there is something you can do about it. You can fight back. And people find that to be very compelling and it, draw, it really draws people in very deeply. You refer to quite a few different scholars who have been addressing this issue, and one of them is Mark Jurgensmeyer. Is that how you say uh, it? Yeah, uh, Jurgensmeyer. Jurgens uh, from um, yeah. UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. And he actually makes a comparison with Al Qaeda or ISIS in that it's seen as a battle of good versus evil. Could you expand on that aspect, please? Sure. So I'd been thinking that this sort of totalist language that a lot of these movements use, this good versus evil, silent war, it felt to me very much like stuff that I'd found that were transcripts of Al-Qaeda members who were sitting in prison that Mark Juergensmeyer had interviewed. We have a mutual contact and I was able to reach out to him and I said, am I overreacting by comparing QAnon to the, the language of movements like Al-Qaeda? And he said, no, you're not overreacting. The language is the same. The, the belief is the same. The belief that the rest of us don't know what's going on and this small group of special people does know what's going on and they will do anything that they can to wake up the rest of us to what's going on. And these were, he got these quotes from the original World Trade Center bombers in 1993. You know, these were people who had killed people on behalf of this ideology. And you have the same thing in QAnon. And I mean, certainly we haven't had a QAnon member who flew a building into a plane or, you know, blew up a, a bomb in a building. But at the same time, those movements work up to that. It took over 10 years for Al-Qaeda to go from just a, a small movement in Afghanistan to to 9-11. It took about 11 years for um, Shinriko to do the same thing in Tokyo. We're only a little over three years into QAnon, and they've already killed multiple people. They've disrupted the peaceful transfer of power in Washington on January 6th. And it's a movement that is growing bigger. It's growing stronger. It's getting much more mainstream. And I think it is it is absolutely something that we need to start worrying about in terms of a mass casualty event. I, and I don't know that we'll be able to see it coming until it happens, but I think we really have to stay up on it because that is a real possibility to me. You also quote Dr. Alexandra Stein she describes these movements as violent utopianism a la ISIS. She notes that it is fear upon fear upon fear being amplified, coupled with secrecy, which is kind of tantalizing. And the other aspect that it shares with, it's not unique in history, but it's a, it's a movement based on prophecies of great events that just never happen, 
prophesied event after prophesied event, and yet it continues. Yeah, it's very cult-like in that respect. One of the things I really wanted to do was to talk to scholars in cults and religious violence and try to figure out, is this is this a cult? Because it do, there are ways in which it is, but there are also ways in which it's very different than what we think of as cults. So I really wanted to talk to people, and, and Dr. Stein was terrific. She's a, she's a wonderful interview, and she's a great writer. And that idea of contrasting terror of the outside world with the love you feel in the movement, I think nails Q exactly. And it, it is a very much prophecy-based movement. You know, it harkens back to the, the UFO cult in the book, When Prophecy Fails. It's a book everybody should read to understand why QAnon is, has prospered, given all of these failures. People get so deeply into not just the movement, but the community based around the movement. And with When Prophecy Fails, it's this very, very small group that's built around this Chicago housewife who thinks that she's getting messages from aliens about a great flood that's about to wipe out the world. And only these few people know about it. And it's a very, very small group. I mean, it's it's not even 100 people, I think, at the very end when the UFO is supposed to land. And of course, the UFO doesn't land. But some of them go away, but some of them stick around. Some of them stick with her. And the reasoning is that they have given so much to this community that they can't walk away now. They've burned their boats. They can't go back. This is their life now. And the the same thing happens with QAnon. The prophecy of the storm, the great mass arrests, is not going to happen. The deep state is not going to be brought down by 100,000 sealed indictments. Presumably, Joe Biden is the deep state and is not going to arrest himself. So what they need now is another prophecy because they're not going to walk away from the community they've built. They've not, they're not going to rejoin the rest of us in the normal world because the normal world is full of fear and terrible things happening. They need to stay in their community. And so the, the justification they give themselves is not the, the storm is going to happen, but that Trump is going to be restored to office. And so that's where the movement really is right now. And and that is a, a movement, that's a prophecy, Trump being restored to office, that they could get years of belief out of. Any day now, there's going to be the results of the Maricopa County audit are going to come in. It's going to invalidate Arizona. All those electoral votes are going to go away somehow. And then a bunch of other states are going to have their electoral votes invalidated. And Trump is going to be reinstated as president. And everything's going to be wonderful. Now, never mind that there is no way for that to actually happen. These people don't care about that. What they care about is the belief. The belief is what drives them. And and that is incredibly powerful. The the belief in something that is never going to happen, but you just need it to happen. And so because you need it to happen, it will happen. I was very glad that you included Robert J. Lifton in your book. We actually have interviewed him on Forthright Radio. Oh, wow. And you attribute to him one of the aspects of the cult being the thought-terminating cliché. Yes, a wonderful phrase. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you reminded me of that because I hadn't actually taken that in. And there are a couple of thought-terminating clichés crucial to QAnon. One of them is trust the plan. And this, I think, speaks to whenever something prophesied doesn't happen. That's the response. Trust the plan. Then the other one is 
future proves past. <laughs> Would you share what you have learned about those as mechanisms? Sure. So a thought terminating cliche in the in the Lifton sense is basically any short pat rhetorical phrase that gets you off the hook for further examination of whatever movement you're in. And and we all use these things all the time. Something like the, the phrase, it is what it is. That's a thought terminating cliche. You don't need to think about it more. You just say, well, that's how it is. There's nothing I can do. And so the, the use of these cliches is not necessarily negative. It doesn't mean you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. It's just what we do. But QAnon really thrives off these things. And something like trust the plan is really great for terminating the idea of examining your belief system. If something goes wrong, Biden is inaugurated or whatever, you know, any of these failed prophecies, you just say, trust the plan. There's a plan. I trust it. And that gets you off the hook that says, well, whatever is happening, I just need to go with it because I trust the plan. There's a plan. Somebody knows what's happening and I trust that person. Now, never mind that there is no plan. Nobody knows what's going on here. Everything in this is being made up on the spot. That doesn't matter. These people don't think that way. Another one is is future proves past. And what that means is that something can look like it fizzled out now, but something will happen in the future that retroactively proves that that thing that fizzled out actually didn't fizzle out. It went exactly the way it was supposed to. And all of this keeps people involved in this movement. It keeps people from thinking that they have failed, that the movement is a flop, that Q is just some guy posting crap to wind people up. It, it absolves you of that, and it, and it allows you to think that everything is going the way that you want it to, even when it is clearly not going that way. And I, and I love that term because it so perfectly encapsulates the way these people think. Mike Rothschild, in your book, The Storm is Upon Us, you don't only investigate QAnon as a movement, cult, whatever it is. You also deal very empathically with the families who have reached out to you in serious pain because their loved ones are lost to them in this QAnon rapture or whatever you want to call it. And you spend the end of the book talking about how to help people who want to get out or their families. Would you share some of what you have learned and how to go about that? My first impetus for writing the book was to answer the question that I was getting from people of how do I help these people? Because when I started writing about QAnon, you know, maybe one or two other people were doing it and nobody was really talking about the effect it was having on people. In that time, we've started to have Reddit subreddits like QAnon casualties, which is a very, very empathic place. Uh, and, you know, really somewhere that I would I can't recommend highly enough to go there if you have a person in your life who's dealing with QAnon. Would but, you repeat that? Sure, repeat it, that site. It's on Reddit. It's r slash QAnon casualties. It's a trolling free subreddit. It's very much people who are going through this thing that people don't understand. And even coming up on four years of this, a lot of people still think of QAnon as just a joke or just a kooky internet thing that doesn't really matter. And what I wanted to get across in the book was that it does matter and that it, it, it matters a lot to the people who are going through it. So to help your loved one, your family member get out of QAnon is extremely difficult. And I think the first thing I write about in, the, in this part of the book is this is not going to be easy and it, and it probably is going to fail. 
But if you feel like you have to do it, if you feel like this person is completely lost in this, is doing things that are unsafe, that are costing them money, that are maybe going to cost them their job, are violent person, and you really feel like you can reach them, there are things that you can do. Now, if this is somebody who is a violent person, is an anti-Semitic person, who has maybe been involved in some, some violence on behalf of QAnon, you don't have to get involved with getting them out. You can walk away from that person and feel good about it. I've had people who are like, oh, you know, you want to rescue the capital insurrectionists from QAnon? No, I don't. Those people are gone. You can't reach those people. And it's not safe to try. But if you do feel like your family member or loved one is, is reachable, there are things that you can do. And what you can do most of all is present yourself as a safe harbor. Reach out to that person just to see how they're doing, what's new with them. Not any kind of political discussion. You're not trying to challenge them on their beliefs. You're not trying to debate them out of it. You're not trying to debunk them out of it. None of that will work. And it will just push them deeper and deeper into the conspiracy and you're going to lose them. But what you do is you present yourself as a person that they can just talk to. Somebody who is not in the the in-group of the cult or the movement, and you don't want to talk about QAnon with them. And if they bring it up, you're going to stop it. But you can talk about shared experiences, memories that you've had, things you've done together, things you've enjoyed together. Just very basic stuff, just to let them know, hey, you're here, you're not going to walk away from them right now. And if they start to lose their faith in QAnon, if they find a contradiction, if they find something that doesn't make any sense, if they start to lose interest in it, and they start to tell you about that, then you can work on it together. You can talk about things in QAnon that don't make any sense, ways that Q is contradicting themselves, failures in the prophecies. And you have presented yourself as a person who is willing to talk about it and willing to hear them out to a certain point. And that's the beginning of the work. It is not the end of the work. It's the beginning of it. And it's a process that can take a long time and can be very frustrating. Ultimately, a person is not going to leave QAnon behind unless they want to, unless it stops giving them meaning, unless it stops answering those questions for them. But if it does, then you can present yourself as a person who is willing to talk to them about it. And you can get somebody out that way. It's hard, but you can do it. You point out that it really is an addiction. It, in, it has many of the attributes of an, an addiction. And in terms of how it operates in the brain and the rewards that are felt by the brain. And as with any addiction, it's really hard to leave any kind of an addiction. And as you just said, the person actually has to want to do it first. But another one of the suggestions that you make at the end of the book and this seems like such a no-brainer, but it needs to be said. Try to unplug them. Get them offline, even if it's for a short amount of time. Talk about that aspect of the whole QAnon phenomenon. Sure. And I would say that is true for anybody who is a little bit too deeply enmeshed in the social media doom scrolling, you know, whether it's far right or far left, the social media tends to be kind of an unending fire hose of bad news and gloom. And I think that for anybody, a, a good unplugging can really break that cycle of 
waking up, logging on, and being bummed out. And and that's true certainly for QAnon and for a lot of other things too. Just that idea of getting somebody off the computer and saying, look, nothing important is going to happen in the next couple of hours. And if it does, it'll be there when you log back on. Just getting somebody out and taking a, a hike or playing a game or an overnight trip where there's no good Wi-Fi it's going to be hard because that person's going to feel like they're, they're missing everything, but they're really not. And that I, I think is something we all can do a little bit more of is just, just unplug a bit and just get away from it. And I feel like even when I do that for a day or two, I feel a little less gloomy about the state of the world and a little more able to tackle what's going on. So I would, I would recommend that really for everybody, but particularly for people who are enmeshed in a movement like QAnon. Okay, so regarding social media, you're a journalist, you're a member of the press. Freedom of the press, freedom of expression is really important. But we're also seeing some terribly negative, dangerous aspects of just anything goes on social media. Surely you must have some thoughts about how to address those. Yeah, I mean, freedom of the press is the bedrock of the work that we do. But at the same time, I think there's a a tendency for some people to want unfettered free speech where they can say anything they want. And unfortunately, that always devolves into anarchy. I mean, places like 4chan are famous for anything goes, nothing is off the table. When that happens, it's almost always taken over immediately by racists and bigots and anti-Semites. I mean, that's just the way these things go. What I've asked of social media platforms and what a lot of the book is about is just the the responsibility that these platforms have to protect the people who use them and to draw lines of what they will allow and what they won't allow. And to keep those lines consistent, one of the biggest vectors for QAnon spread in the last year was Facebook. And people would go on to Facebook, especially when the when the lockdown started, people were looking for answers. They were looking for somebody to tell them what was going on and to tell them that everything was going to be okay. But they were also looking for somebody to blame. And so you had people log on to these Facebook groups And they would find an anti-5G Facebook group, and then that would lead them to an anti-vaccine Facebook group, and that would lead them to a Facebook group for the Great Awakening, which is another QAnon term. And you find these things that speak to you. And unfortunately, social media has no – there's no breaks on the algorithm. It just keeps sending you more stuff that it thinks you are going to like. And it's not malicious. It's just what it was designed to do, but it was designed badly, and it's putting very – harmful things in front of people who are looking for answers. And that's a that's a recipe for disaster. And we, we you know, we saw that with QAnon. So what I would ask of the big social media platforms is it's not about censorship. It's not about you can't say that. It's about you can't say that here. We don't allow that here. You want to say that you can go somewhere else, you know, somewhere with a smaller platform that's much more of a closed circle that doesn't have the potential for infecting people with this contagion of disinformation. So what I would ask is that these social media platforms recognize what's going on and and take some action to to curb it. It's not about censoring people. It's about upholding your own rules. It's, it sounds to me as if because of the algorithms and the monetizing, let's not pretend that there isn't money involved in here. But do you think that there is potential 
to choose or create algorithms that, without censoring, direct people to less malignant sites. Well, I know that they've tried. I mean, YouTube for a while was putting links to Wikipedia on conspiracy videos. I mean, that the, I, I appreciate them trying, but that's not going to work. And then Twitter for a while was this, doing this bird watch thing where they were going to have, you know, self-reporting of hate speech. Again, it's a nice thought. It's not going to work. I mean, what you what really needs to happen is these bad actors need to be deplatformed. Deplatforming these terrible people, you know, people like Alex Jones, people like the the worst purveyors of QAnon. It, it's not it, stripping them of their ability to say these things. It's simply saying you can't say these things here. We have a big audience of vulnerable people, and we don't want this here. And we found that that works. Some of these bad actors get kicked off these major platforms, and they just kind of disappear. They go to some uh, some much smaller platform, and they still are able to say whatever they want. But the audience isn't as big, and and that's really what I think needs to happen. Is the you're not deplatforming an idea, but you are you are drawing a line of what is allowed on your site. And I have no problem with a site like Twitter saying Alex Jones is not allowed here. He can go wherever he wants to. He just can't go here. I am completely fine with that, and it doesn't depend on sort of a programming trick that will be gamed by the bad actors anyway, because they always do it. They always find ways around the bands. They always find ways to get their material out. It's it's removing the worst spreaders of this stuff. And I'm perfectly fine with all of that. Do you have any final words for our listeners? The thing that I would say is that the QAnon, as we've understood it over the last three plus years, really is pretty much over. They've dropped that branding. There haven't been new Q drops in the last six months. But what they're really focusing on now is the stolen election narrative. And this is really where they are putting their energy. And unfortunately, they've found something that is also extremely mainstream Republican now. You've got Republican senators who won't say whether Joe Biden fairly won the election. And this is such a bigger problem than Q was at its beginning. And I think we're really only seeing the tip of how bad this stolen election conspiracy is going to be. I wish I had better news, but unfortunately, that's just where we are right now. So look out for that. Well, Mike Rothschild, thank you so much. Thank you very much. You have just heard an interview with Mike Rothschild. His latest book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, was just published by Melville House. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. This past week, U.S. troops left Bagram, the sprawling airbase north of Kabul, that was the symbolic and operational heart of the American military operation in Afghanistan. There are fewer than 1,000 U.S. troops remaining in Afghanistan. We'll end today's Forthright Radio with a song by Roy Zimmerman, The Last Man. Well, I just found out and I feel so proud I'm the one they chose, wanna shout it out loud Yeah, my head is light and my eyes are watery 
I feel like I just won the lottery I'll be the last man oh, What an honor The last random American Last man to die in I never was one of the lucky ones But I'm the one they chose over their own sons To be the final guy to die forsakenly When they finally figure out we've been there mistakenly I'll be the last man, oh what an honor, the last random American, last man to die in Afghanistan. Did we conquer that country like the Russians overthrew them? Like the British and the Mongols Had their asses handed to them Did we bring them democracy? Well, our guy got elected When the votes were tabulated Duplicated and corrected And isn't that worth it? Just ask my mom her dad was the last man to die in Nam. Well, I've heard them say freedom isn't free. Someone's got to pay, and well, they chose me to be the last example of tough diplomacy. Last casket folks back in Oklahoma City I'll be the last man Oh, what an honor The last random American Last man to die in Afghanistan Oh, what an honor The last stranded American Last man to die in This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.